Thank you for downloading this message from Roots Community Church. We pray that you are encouraged by the word. If you're looking for more information, please visit us at rccphoenix.com. Hello again, everybody. Pastor Matt here from Roots Community Church in Phoenix, Arizona, and I want to welcome you to this week's message. We're going to start off a brand new series this week here at RCC, and it's called the Wisdom Series. We're going to be going for several weeks, and this entire series is going to be based out of the book of Proverbs. Now, I'm a church brat kid, and if you grew up in church for any length of time, I'm sure you've heard something from the book of Proverbs, even if you haven't been saved that long or you're not even a believer. I'm sure you've heard of the wisdom <clears throat> of Solomon and, and, and the wisdom that's in Proverbs at some point in time in your life. But one thing that I never really did was define what a proverb was. I just, I, I knew there was a book in the Bible called Proverbs and I knew who wrote it, but I never really looked at it. So the definition, let me start off with the definition of the word proverb is this. It, in the original language of the Bible in the Hebrew, it's mashal. And it's, the definition says, sayings that have substance or a point. A saying that reveals a general truth. A parable, sentences of ethical wisdom, ethical sayings, and the last definition is a truism. So in our modern time, we have sayings like this. I'm not equating them with the importance of Scripture or Proverbs, but just to kind of give you a, a similarity of something that you may have heard before, like a saying that has like a general meaning, uh, let, me, um, let me see if you've heard some of these. Ready? If it ain't broke, don't fix it. What are they saying? If it's not broken, leave it alone. If there's a process that's moving, just let it keep going. Um, don't try to <clears throat> fix something that's not broken, right? Kind of a, gen- a statement of general truth. Here's another one. Don't try and reinvent the wheel. If something's already been invented, it's already working, it's kind of derivative of the first one, right? Like if it ain't broke, don't fix it. If it's, don't try to reinvent the wheel, we're already using that. Let's spend our time on something else. <clears throat> Here's another one. Luck is what happened when preparation meets opportunity. Ever heard that? What does that mean? Well, there's not really any such thing as luck. It's when you're prepared and an opportunity comes, you go, man, I'm fortunate to have this opportunity, but you were preparing for it. So it kind of defines what luck really is, puts it in its real place. What about this one? You can probably finish this one for me. People don't care how much you know until they know how much you care. That's right. Um, These are all sayings and kind of like, you know, um, clever sentences that are used to illustrate a general point. These are not on the same level of scripture by any means, but in our modern culture, we have some of these sayings, but the sayings that we're going to be talking about and the proverbs that we're going to be talking about during this series are far more important than the little things I just mentioned. So, who wrote these sayings? Most of you probably can answer this pretty easily. It's Solomon. But did you know Solomon was the son of David and Bathsheba? Yes, that Bathsheba. See, when David um, committed adultery with Bathsheba and had her husband Uriah killed, um, the baby that she was pregnant with from that interaction with David died. And after that baby died, kind of as judgment and punishment against David, David went back to God 
and apologized, asked for forgiveness, repented. He took his punishment, but then he had to honor his word in marrying Bathsheba. So when he did that, now after he had repented and after he had been made right with God, God finally recognizes Bathsheba as David's wife and he blesses them in a second union that results in a in a child and in a pregnancy. This time, <clears throat> that baby was Solomon. Solomon's father was the former king of Israel, David, and when David died, Solomon became king. It was succession. That was the plan. If if I were the king and I died, then my son, Kobe, would take over and he would become the king. Solomon was 20 years old when he became king of the entire nation of Israel. I don't know about you, but if we had a governor of our state here in Arizona that was 20 years old or a mayor of a city, I think most people would just be like, oh my goodness, God help us. <clears throat> Not because we don't think the 20-year-old isn't has the potential to be capable or one day would grow into a great leader. We're just worried because there's no life experience. They haven't been through anything. They don't really have any scars of bad decisions, things they've had to live through and learn from, and <clears throat> not enough time to really kind of build the knowledge that we would trust to govern us here in a state or a city. But Solomon was 20 when he took over that nation. Millions of people were under his direction, his command, millions. And God comes to Solomon in a dream and asks him for one thing. Give me one thing that you want as the king, and I'll give it to you. 1 Kings chapter 3, verses 5-14 through 14 records this encounter. That night, the Lord appeared to Solomon in a dream. God said, what do you want? Ask, and I will give it to you. Solomon replied, You showed great and faithful love to your servant, my father, David, because he was honest and true and faithful to you. And you have continued to show this great and faithful love to him today by giving him a son to sit on his throne. Now, O Lord, my God, you have made me king instead of my father David, but I am like a little child who doesn't know his way around. And here I am in the midst of your own chosen people, a nation so great and numerous they cannot be counted. Give me an understanding heart so that I can govern your people well and know the difference between right and wrong. For who by himself is able to govern this great people of yours? The Lord was pleased that Solomon asked for wisdom. So God replied, Because you have asked for wisdom in governing my people with justice, and if not asked for a long life or wealth or the death of your enemies, I will give you what you ask for. I will give you a wise and understanding heart such as no one else has ever had or ever will have. And I will also give you what you did not ask for, riches and fame. No other king in all the world will be compared to you for the rest of your life. And if you follow me and obey my decrees and my commands as your father David did, I will give you a long life. <clears throat> Here, Solomon has the opportunity to be selfish. He has this, the opportunity to show his youth. But instead of asking for something selfish, to be known for riches, for victory in battle or whatever, he asks to have an understanding heart 
so he can govern God's people well and know the difference between right and wrong. God hears him explain that and calls that wisdom. You've asked for wisdom, and that is the greatest thing you could have asked me for. And now because of that, I'll give you everything else. Now that he awakens from this dream, his God-given wisdom that has been imparted to him was immediately put to the test. We go down to verse 16 of 1 Kings chapter 3, that same chapter, and here is where his his wisdom is really shown for the first time in his decision-making and his ruling to the people of Israel and to the people who are on his his, uh, advisory committee. Sometime later, two prostitutes came to the king to have an argument settled. Please, my lord, one of them began, this woman and I live in the same house. I gave birth to a baby while she was with me in the house. Three days later, this woman also had a baby. We were alone. There were only two of us inside the house. But her baby died during the night when she rolled over on it. Then she got up in the night and took my son from beside me while I was asleep. She laid her dead child in my arms and took mine to sleep beside her. And in the morning when I tried to nurse my son, he was dead. But when I looked more closely in the morning light, I saw that it wasn't my son at all. Then the other woman interrupted, It certainly was your son, and the living child is mine. No, the first woman said, The living child is mine, and the dead one is yours. And so they argued back and forth before the king. Then the king said, Let the, Let's get the facts straight. Both of you claim the living child is yours, and each says the dead one belongs to the other. All right, bring me a sword. So a sword was brought to the king. Then he said, cut the living child in two and give half to one woman and half to the other. Then the woman who was the real mother of the living child and who loved him very much cried out, oh no, my lord, give her the child. Please do not kill him. But the woman said, but the other woman said, all right, he will neither be yours or mine. Divide him between us. Then the king said, do not kill the child, but give him to the woman who wants him to live, for she is his mother. When all Israel heard the king's decision, the people were in awe of the king, for they saw the wisdom God had given him for rendering justice. So here, the picture is painted for us that these two women, they're both prostitutes, got pregnant from a a paid uh, sexual encounter, and they both have children, and uh, you heard the story, one dies and one lives, and the other one swaps the baby out in the middle of the night, and then they start just going at it in front of each other. They're in front of the king, in front of everybody who's there in the palace. They just start yapping at each other, and it is baby mama drama for real, right? Like, it is just... All of the of the craziness going on, they're screaming, yelling, hollering, they're arguing in front of the king. <clears throat> and I can just almost see that picture of his counsel and his advisors going, oh, geez, what is he going to do? And then the first thing he does is ask for a sword. Oh, my gosh, what is he going to do? And then he gives a wise response. And this was the beginning of him ruling Israel with the wisdom that God had granted him. because of this wisdom and because of what we read in the previous chapter, Solomon is considered the wisest man other than Jesus to ever live. 
He had so much insight, so much wisdom, so much understanding for what things were going on in people, in his culture, in circumstances. He had so much wisdom that he is considered the wisest person to ever live. The reason I went through that really quickly is because I wanted to paint a picture for you to see this is the person who, inspired by the Spirit of God, empowered with a gift that God has given him, he begins to write the book of Proverbs. Now, he wrote the vast majority of them, not all of them. Some at the end are not really his, but um, the vast majority of these are his sayings, his wisdom that he is trying to pass on to the generation behind him, to his own kids, and anyone who will read this in the future. The wisest man who ever lived that was given that wisdom by God, who was prompted by his Holy Spirit to say things and then have them recorded, these are the words that we're about to get into. Every bit of scripture should be held in high regard, but this gives us a little bit more context of, oh my goodness, we have to really pay attention to all of it all of the all of the Bible because it is infallible. It is is it inerrant. It is God's word to us. But these words right here are given to us with even a little bit more umph because a man who was given the gift of wisdom the most in all the world writes these next words. <clears throat> so let's get into them. Proverbs chapter one. We're gonna read verses one through six here, but we're gonna eventually get through all nineteen. here's what he says. These are the Proverbs of Solomon, David's son, king of Israel. Their purpose is to teach people wisdom and discipline, to help them understand the insights of the wise. Their purpose is to teach people to live disciplined and successful lives, to help them do what is right, just, and fair. These Proverbs will give insight to the simple, knowledge and discernment to the young. Let the wise listen to these Proverbs and become even wiser. Let those with understanding receive guidance by exploring the meaning in these Proverbs and parables, the words of the wise and their riddles. Notice what he does. If you're a volleyball player, you're familiar with the terms bump, set, spike. There is a bump, there is a setup, and then there's a spike. Um, this, these first six verses are the bump and the setup for the spike that's about to come. Here's the bump. I'm Solomon. I'm the one who is saying these things. I am David's son. I am the king of Israel. He is stating right up front his qualifications. Then he wastes no time. What are the purpose of these sayings that we're about to record? These things I'm about to say, what's the purpose of them? It's to teach people wisdom and discipline. To help them understand the insights of the wise. So when someone is taught wisdom and discipline and understanding, they're being taught here. But your thoughts are the beginning, uh, they're the beginning phase of beliefs that will grow in you. They begin as thoughts. So what he's trying to do here first is to hit your mind, hit your intellect. He's giving you the head knowledge first, and then he says, In verse 3, their purpose is to teach people to live disciplined and to live successful lives, to help them do what is right. So what he's saying is these these proverbs, 
are supposed to give you insight and knowledge, not so you can know what they are and be able to recite them and spout them off in, in some eager fashion that you memorize the Bible word for word. No, they're not just supposed to be put to your memory. That's step one, but it's supposed to flow into your heart and then come out of you in your words and your actions. Their per- once, you, once you see this, And once you understand what he's teaching you, their purpose is to teach people to live. There's an action word, discipline, and successful lives, another action word. To help them do, action word, what is right, just, and fair. There is no message that you will ever hear in church that is supposed to give you information that does not lead to action. This message, any message you've ever listened to from me or any other pastor, the goal of the message is not to just to teach you intellectual um, prowess, to give you knowledge, to make your head the, the size of an encyclopedia. If you don't know what that is, the old school people, it's a big giant book, right, with a bunch of knowledge. <clears throat> it's not supposed to do that. It's supposed to lead you to changing your beliefs and understanding so that you live a disciplined, successful life and then you do what is right, just, and fair. The next thing it does is it gives knowledge and discernment to the young. We hear that a lot, that word discernment, especially in the evangelical church in the West. We hear that word discernment. And um, so I, I wanted to take some time just real quickly and talk about what discernment means. There's three definitions of this word I want to look at really quickly, and the first one is this, to taste The second one, to make a proper judgment call and recognize the moral implications of a situation or a course of action. And the third one, the ability to weigh and assess the moral and spiritual status of individuals, groups, and even movements without becoming judgmental. Discernment means I'm going to have to sample something in life. That's where the taste comes in. It doesn't mean to literally taste something. It's figurative, and, and you're going to have to sample something and kind of discern in your mind or think about or make a judgment call. What's the implications, the moral implications? What's the moral situation? What's the, the course of action I'm going to go through here when it comes to this particular thing that's been laid at my feet, a decision I need to make? You were supposed to taste it. And you ever tasted something really good and you thought, man, there is something really good in this. What is that? There's an ingredient there. And you ask whoever made it or the the waitress at a, at a restaurant or something, can you ask the cook, what is that ingredient in there? I taste these, but what's that other thing? You can also taste something that's terrible and go, oh my gosh, what is in this? What is that taste? You are supposed to be able to determine in a similar way what is right and what is wrong? What is moral? What is immoral? What are the ripple effects of this action? Uh, or if I participate in this or say this or do this thing, that is supposed to be part of discernment. The other thing is to weigh and assess the moral and spiritual status of individuals and groups and even movements. If you were given an opportunity by a friend, let's just say your friend calls you real quick, 
and says, hey, man, let's go get some coffee. I just want to let you know, I started going to church again. I'm giving my life back to God, and I really want to talk about these things with you. This, this is, you know, I'm, I'm going through a lot of change. And you go, great, man, tell me when and where. And he's like, ah, let's don't do coffee. Let's do dinner. Like, sure thing. Let's, let's do chilies. They got bottomless, you know, tortilla chips and salsa. <clears throat> great. I'll meet you there at 7. Well, then at 6 o'clock, he, you, he gives you a call and says, hey, man, change of plans. Let's don't go to Chili's for dinner, grab something fast food on the way, but meet me at a strip club right next door or down the street or wherever. And you go, wait, what? There has to be a moment here where you have to weigh and assess the moral status and the standing of an individual. Doesn't mean that you rain down on him and be like, "Are you are going to hell?" You know, not. I'm not telling you to do all that, <clears throat> but what I'm saying is, you have to weigh at that moment. Okay, this person is very new in their faith again, and they're making a decision that a wise person who has discernment would not make. I'm not going to go there and be there with him, and so you tell him, "Hey, man." I don't want to do that because that's against the scripture. That's against um, what God would have us do. That's going to lead me into immorality. It's going to open the door for lust. It's going to <clears throat> open the door for a lot of these crazy thoughts. I shouldn't be looking at somebody who's not my wife like this, you know. And then he responds to you and says, oh, man, but it wasn't my idea. It's just some a bunch of my friends. They want to go. And I don't want to be that guy, you know. I don't want to be the one who's always like, no, I can't do that because I go to church now. And I, I, I'll work up to it, but I'm just going to go with him. Just, just be cool, man. Just come. Okay, so now you've assessed the moral standing of this person. Now you're making a moral assessment of this group. So now you know if you're invited by this group somewhere, there is an opportunity that, or there's a possibility they're going to present an opportunity to do something wrong. So what does that lead you to? I'm going to have to make a decision to create some distance here and from this friend. If you want to go have coffee or dinner at Chili's with the bottomless tortilla chips and not go to the place where they're actually bottomless, you know, like if you wanted to stick with the food, then we're good. I can go do that with you, but I can't go this other place. You, that is discerning the situation. Now let's kind of very, you know, elementary, um, very basic level. I think most people would get that decision right. I would hope most believers would get that decision right. But that's an example of discernment in action. It's not just so you know what's right and wrong and then be like, oh, I know it, and then still go do the wrong thing. No, this wisdom and these, these proverbs are supposed to impart into us the wisdom, the knowledge, the understanding that would lead us to act differently. So that was the bump in the set, and here comes three major spikes. There are, now that he's set the table for this, now that he has has kind of has uh, set up why these parables are being recorded and what their purpose is, he gives three things that we're going to cover quickly that need to be um things that we prioritize. They need to be prioritized in our life. The very first thing that he says, number one, after all the setup, after the bump, the set, here comes the spike. The very first thing he says is you need to 
fear the Lord. Verse 7, Proverbs 1, verse 7. Fear of the Lord is the foundation of true knowledge, but fools despise wisdom and discipline. <clears throat> now, when you hear that word fear of the Lord, you can, if you're not familiar with how it's used, you could think, well, why would I be afraid of God? Why does he want me to be afraid of him? I'm not talking about being afraid like you're afraid of the dark or afraid of the, you know, the monster in the closet as a kid or a very healthy fear of snakes. I hate snakes. I'm afraid of them, okay? I don't like them. But that's not the kind of fear that he's talking about. This particular word fear in this passage means respect, honor, and reverence. Respect, honor, and reverence. What he's saying here is that genuine respect, genuine honor, genuine reverence to Almighty God is the foundation of true knowledge. That foundation means it is the beginning. It is the frame of the vehicle. It is the infrastructure of the technology. It is the operating system for your iPhone. It is the concrete slab under the house. It is the foundation. Nothing else can be built on top of your life until the foundation is properly prepared. And if you build things that are not on the foundation of that respect, that reverence, that honoring, that relationship with God, if you build things like that, you are building it on a flawed foundation. Just as the word of the old hymns penned in the 1800s say, on Christ the solid rock I stand, all other ground is sinking sand. If I'm going to build something on my own human understanding, my own limited human intellect, my own limited human ideas, <clears throat> that it is going to fall apart because that foundation is not secure, it's not solid, it is sinking sand. You can keep the wisdom of the world. You can keep the insanity of our current politicians. You can keep the new morality or immorality of our legislators. You can keep the idiocy of most secular university professors. You can keep the woke ideology and the red pill rhetoric. You can go all the way to the left or all the way to the right politically on a lot of these issues. You can keep all of that, I don't want a part of any of it. And the reason you can keep it is because all of those things are built on the broken, flawed, misunderstanding, limited, finite ideas of human being. They are selfish. They are broken. They are flawed. They will never hold up to the test of time. There's a, there's a passage later in the Bible that says, unless the Lord builds the house, those who labor build it in vain. He is my firm foundation. Another song says it's more recent. The rock on which I stand. You do not need to be afraid. If you are a believer in Christ, listen to me. You do not need to be afraid of those who control the popular public um, narratives that are shaped in our culture. You don't need to fear the ones that are pretending now that immora immorality is actual freedom, that up is down, that right is wrong, that having faith in God is just some juvenile, very infantile, very low-minded effort. The wisdom of Solomon <clears throat> astounded the kings queens, and rulers of the surrounding nations around him. They came from far and wide to hear, hear the wise sayings of Solomon, just to, to pay some money, to be in his presence, to learn what they didn't know, some truths, and in every single one of them left a 
astounded at his wisdom. The reason that the enemy is working hard in our culture today through unbelievers to intimidate you as a follower of Jesus into silence is because if you are in his word and you are hiding his word in your heart so you don't sin against him, if you are putting the wisdom of God inside of you, if the spirit of God is is filling you and you are asking him to give you his wisdom, what's going to happen? The wisdom, and the, the, that wisdom is going to come out of your mouth. It's going to change the way you act, and it's going to expose the illogical, immoral, irrational ideas of flawed human beings. It's going to expose them for wanting just like they really are. The respect of Almighty God, the relationship we have with Him through Jesus is the beginning, the foundation of of wisdom. I don't know anything apart from him. He's the source of our goodness. He is the standard of our ethics. He is the creator of all things. Everything starts with him on heaven and on earth and includes knowledge and wisdom. The very first thing that the wisest man who ever lived, Solomon, says to us is show respect, honor, and reverence to Almighty God, and we need to listen to him. That's the first thing he says. The second thing he encourages us to do, number two, right after the the, the fear of the Lord, is this, listening to your elders. Listening to your elders. Let's continue on. Proverbs 1, let's read verse 8 and 9. My child, listen when your father corrects you. Don't neglect your mother's instructions. What you learn from them will crown you with grace and be a chain of honor around your neck. In this passage, Solomon refers to a parent-child relationship. But in their culture, these words were also used to describe a student-teacher relationship. I don't want to pass over the parent-child relationship quickly. Let me just stop here for a second. There's a lot of times that children will not understand the reasoning or the decisions that a parent will make. There's a lot of times that they don't see the danger that the parent sees. They don't see the possibility of something goes sideways like, a parent would see. There is a, um, a story of a young lady who, uh, who was very frustrated with her father because as a young child, she always wanted to go and have a sleepover at her friend's house. Her dad, in every single instance, all the way through her enchi- entire childhood, all the way through her school years, all the way until she graduated and turned 18, told her no. It's not that I don't trust the, the, the families of the people of your friends, that your parents uh, of your friends, not that I don't trust your friends, but there's always an element, always a family member somewhere in there that throws a wild card into the mix, and that makes me nervous. I do not want you to experience something terrible because you wanted to spend the night at one of your friends' house. They can come here and spend the night, and we will protect them and do everything that we can, but you can't go anywhere to to spend the night with your friends. He was adamant about it. 
he would not allow his daughter to be put in that position. She rolled her eyes. She was so upset with him. She was like, oh, he doesn't know anything. He's so overprotective. My dad's just dumb. He's just old. He doesn't know that I can handle myself. All these thoughts run through her mind, just like they run through all of our mind when we were young and our parents told us not to do something. <clears throat> but then when this young lady turned 18, she graduated high school. And on her birthday, her dad asked, what do you want to do? And she goes, this might sound weird, but I want to go have a sleepover with a friend of mine. It was, a, it was another young lady. And so the dad said, well, I would prefer you not do this, but I understand that you're 18 now. You can make a decision. I can't stop you. So just be very careful. Several hours later, the phone of that father rang. And it was his daughter on the other line in tears. He was upset. And if you could put yourself in that situation, you're, you're worried about these things happening to your daughter. And now the first time she goes, she's 18. She's calling you crying. You can imagine what's running through his head. And he's like, baby, what is the matter? What is going on? And she goes, just let me tell you something, dad. We just had a moment where we were sitting around talking about um, all the times that we went and spent the night at other people's houses and they went around the circle, and I was super embarrassed because when they got to me, I had to tell them, this is my first sleepover because I wasn't allowed to do any of this. My dad was super protective, and she kind of rolled her eyes and all that stuff. Didn't want anything to happen to me. And I told him nothing would, but <clears throat> he wouldn't listen to me. And then all the other girls that were there, the four or five that were in the group having a sleepover that night, all got a very serious look on their face, and one by one, Every single girl broke down in tears telling the story about how they experienced assault, the worst kind of assault. They experienced essay at the hands of a family member of the person they spent the night with with their friend. That woman... That young lady called her dad not because she had been abused, but to thank him for not giving in to her whining, to her griping, to her complaining, to her eye rolling. She thanked him for protecting her when she didn't know that she needed protection. She was the only one who was not abused. And Every single one of them experienced it at the sleepover of a friend. <clears throat> Children, listen to your parents. Unless they're telling you some crazy immoral thing to do, then you, uh, you have to listen to them. You have to honor them regardless. I understand. I hear you. I'm respecting what you're, what you're saying. I just can't live that way because I'm following God. That would be the only time where I'd look at you and be like, man, these are general truths. But in that specific instance, you'd have to go, man, I need to be honorable to what I know is right in front of God. But outside of those little one-off scenarios, listen to your parents. You may not think that they have anything to offer you. You may think they're old and out of touch, not in, you know, not in connection to what culture and society is doing right now. They've lived a little bit. This is what Solomon's saying. You don't know what you don't know. You're ignorant. Now, that word doesn't mean stupid. It means what I just said. You don't know what you don't know. <clears throat> this shouldn't just be um, 
something that we look at from a parent-child relationship, we should also look at this as a student-teacher. And even if you're someone who's my age in your mid-40s, you need to also understand that you don't know what you don't know. And you do know some things. You've lived through some things. You have some scars. You have some experience. But there's always somebody out there that you can learn from. You might have been, right now, you might have just thought somebody that just ran through your mind right when I said that. You think, man, I really, I really could use some insight on something I'm dealing with. Or I would just like to hear what they have to say on this situation. If it's somebody you trust, if it's a godly person, someone who has pursued wisdom, meet with them. Call them this week. Set up a time to grab coffee. Run by their house if they're older to the point where they can't get out very easily. Go to them. I don't know any person who won't um, pass on the wisdom that they have attained in life if they're not <clears throat> if they're not sincerely asked about it. They want to pour out their wisdom that they have discovered, the things they have seen in life. There's some lessons that might take 10 or 12 years. They could kind of summarize in uh, 20 minutes and change the trajectory of your life or decision that you're going to make. God can use them to influence and shape you in a way. But we can't do that if we're looking at the older folks and being like, okay, boomer. Oh, I'm not listening to anybody who needs help to make a FaceTime call. And we can get all kind of up on our high horse because someone doesn't understand technology as much as we do. Or we could realize that those wisdom principles are timeless. The same things that were written thousands of years ago from the mouth and the mind and the heart of Solomon prompted by the Holy Spirit, those things still apply today. There's a lot of things that are going to go away from young people, like the ability to read small print without squinting, <laughs> the ability to severely sprain your ankle and then walk on it a few hours later. You'll lose that. The ability to sleep without snoring like a herd of angry javelinas. You'll lose that. You will wind up doing that. The ability to stay up till midnight and not need two days afterwards to recover. The ability to eat anything and stay thin. All those things are going to happen in your youth. And if you'll notice, the culture constantly promotes the youth, constantly promotes looking younger, dressing younger, sounding younger, uh, feeling younger. And it's all about young, young, young. Push push back to those young days. Don't, don't get old as if that wisdom that comes with it is a bad thing. The reason that a lot of people who would try to manipulate us in our culture want us to focus on our youth and to abandon these principles that we know to be true, abandon wisdom, ab abandon understanding, abandon common sense. The reason they want you to do that is because you are controlled more when you don't know what you don't know and you abandon the wisdom. You could think, Matt, Who's trying to do that? Who's trying to get me to turn off my understanding and wisdom? Uh, people who are trying to tell you that two plus two doesn't equal four, that it now equals five, that logic is uh, logic and reasoning are the ideas of an oppressor, that um, there are more than two genders, 
that um, whatever you want to do, God's cool with. That uh, uh, the, the, the cringiest thing I've ever heard in my life as a minister is to listen this past couple of weeks to these progressive affirming ministers stand up and write a new creed about how God is queer and Jesus is non-binary and had two dads and all this ridiculous nonsense. All of that's permeating our culture. And you may roll your eyes at it, but there are people out there who are being deceived by it now. The culture does want to keep you ignorant of thinking outside of anything that is ultimately creating a dependency on something else. You will only find freedom if you fear God. And then one of the ways he uses um, to help you mature is his word, but also the people who teach you, the older folks. Listen to your elders. The third thing that he mentions in this first chapter is in verse 10 through 19. Here's what he says. My child, if sinners entice you, turn your back on them. They may say, come join us. Let's hide and kill someone just for fun. Let's ambush the innocent. Let's swallow them alive like the grave. Let's swallow them whole like those who go down to the pit of death. Think of the great things we'll get. We'll fill our houses with all the stuff we take. Come, throw your lots in with us. We'll all share the loot. My child, don't go along with them. Stay far away from their paths. They rush to commit evil deeds. They hurry to commit murder. If a bird sees a trap being set, it knows to stay away. But these people set an ambush for themselves. They are trying to get themselves killed. Such is the fate of all who are greedy for money. It robs them of life. The first and most obvious reference to the people that he's talking about here is your friend circle. Got to choose your friend circle correctly. Be careful who you surround yourself with. There's a um, a study that is summarized up in one statement uh, that looked at the impact of what's going to shape your future for the next five years. And the saying goes that in five years, you will be the sum total of the people you hang out with and the books you read. The people you hang out with and the books you read. Why? Why is it the people you hang out with? Because they have an immediate influence on your thoughts and your actions. But why the books you read? Because you are allowing those books, you are giving them the opportunity to be accepted by you and considered by you, and then it begins to shape other actions. When you go buy a book, someone recommends a book to you, when you see the title of it and you're going to, <clears throat> I'm not talking about like a fiction book, I'm talking about something else, like you're going to go read like some personal development book and tells you why you're doing this and the psychology behind it, all this stuff. I'm not saying that's bad, but I'm saying that when you voluntarily go pick up that book and you're interested in it and you start reading, what you're doing is you're opening access to whoever this is to make an influence on your life and your future decisions. What he's saying here is you got to be careful who you let influence you. Remember the thing that we talked about earlier about discernment? This is the moment. Moments like this where you are presented an opportunity. This is where you employ that discernment. This is where you use that wisdom you gain 
by thinking about, considering, mulling over, studying God's Word, and specifically these wise sayings and these Proverbs. Can you discern or make a proper judgment about the people around you? Can you make a discernment about God-respecting decisions and those you associate with and listen to? Do the people you listen to that you take advice from, are they people who honor God? And if they're not, what makes you think that they are worthy to have influence in your life? <clears throat> if, um, I, I, if, there, if I have a door right here, let's imagine a door between me and you and it's shut. It doesn't matter what's brought to the door if it just stays outside, if I never give it access to be brought inside. But if I open the door and something is delivered and I bring it inside, I've now put it in a position to be considered. Don't just be careful about the people you're hanging out, out with. Yes, that is the, 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 the easiest way to read this. But as you study this deeper, he's talking about also be careful who you allow to have influence in your life. When they want you to participate in things that are immoral, when they want you to run off and do things that are against God's word, when they want you to um, uh, do things that are below the standard that God has set for us in his word, things that we know are flat out sin, he's saying don't go with them, don't even consider it, run away from those people, create distance. The very first thing he says is fear God. The second thing he says is listen to your elders. And the third thing is run from bad influences. Do not even give them access to your heart. I want to wrap up today's message um, by doing just one last thing. I want to read uh, James 1, 5 through 8. You'll probably hear me repeat this message or this particular passage a lot in this this, uh, series because it gives us one of the answers about what we're supposed to do. If we look at the description I just went through in Proverbs chapter 1 and go, man, I'm lacking in wisdom. I'm lacking in understanding. I'm lacking in discernment. I'm not making good choices. I'm finding myself in places of compromise that I voluntarily went. I, did, I didn't choose my friends right. I've been ignoring the, the words and the warnings from people who are older than me or my parents. I have not been reverencing or respecting or honoring God in the way I know is right. What do I do about it? How do I increase in this wisdom? James lays out one of the things that we do immediately. Verse 5, if you need wisdom, ask our generous God, and he will give it to you. He will not rebuke you for asking. But when you ask him, be sure that your faith is in God alone. Do not waver, for a person with divided loyalty is as unsettled as a wave of the sea that is blown and tossed by the wind. Such people should not expect to receive anything from the Lord. Their loyalty is divided between God and the world, and they are unstable in everything they do. If you, my friend, are lacking in wisdom, go and ask God first. God, please give me your wisdom. 
please give me your understanding. Let me increase in it. It says that I'm asking you because my faith is in you. You are the, the, the author of everything, including wisdom and knowledge and understanding. And it says here very plainly, he will not rebuke you for asking. He's not going to look at you and be like, idiot, you don't know that already? Nope, that's not what he does. He gives you what you're asking for when it comes to wisdom. The second thing you do is build your relationship with him and consume his word. How in the world um, are we going to know what is right to do without reading what he's already given us to do. One of the ways is the Spirit of God resides inside of us and convicts us, but one of the jobs of the Holy Spirit is to bring back the things that we have read, that we've heard, that we've studied. And so we have to be running to God, respecting him, asking him to give us wisdom, then we have to not just be reading these things intellectually, but allowing it to shape our belief and come out of our actions. And we know what our actions are supposed to be because we are reading his word. And that's the answer. It's a simple answer. <clears throat> Go to him, ask him, repent if you're doing something wrong, and then consume his word. And when you do those things, it's going to help shape your actions. You're going to be presented with opportunities to do sinful, evil, wicked, foolish things the rest of your life. You'll get better. The, the, the longer you walk with God, you'll get better at turning them down, but you'll still have to turn them down. There'll still be a moment of decision. There'll still be a moment of understanding, wisdom, of discernment that's needed in you. So let it take a very deep root and a very deep hole in you. I don't do this very often, but... um. Um, I, I have a prayer for us that I'd like to give that you can take as your own. Um, it's not magic in any way. It's not something you can recite and it's going to just automatically, bam, make things better. But it's a starting point for your prayer if you need one. And it's this. God, please give us the wisdom to live righteously, the discernment to judge correctly, the understanding to walk securely, the discipline to live fully, and the courage to move boldly. That's my prayer for all of us, for myself and for you. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May his face shine upon you. May he be gracious to you and may he give you peace. And may he give you his wisdom.